our children will be with us um, each Sunday when we have a few moments here to, in Advent, to reflect and remember that the priceless gift of God's sending of his only son for our redemption touches us at every single point of need. A wonderful line from the the hymn, Joy to the World, says that he has come to make his blessing known far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. And one theme we might carry into these weeks of Advent that can be so very powerful is to know that God Almighty in his redeeming grace through Christ Jesus has called each of us, gifted us, each of us, and sent each of us to be the carriers of that blessing. I often think about the role of the prophets in the Bible as, as a kind of, figuratively, as a kind of gift wrap from God around the greatest gift the world has ever seen. Just like Christmas gift wrap throughout the seasons in our lives, there's a vast variety of gift wraps and a vast variety of types of gift wraps for different gifts. And the prophetic word of God has so much rich diversity. It's like a tapestry of truth that like gift wrap can be everything from the festive and the jubilant, um, joyous, even bubbly, overflowing happiness about the coming plan of God to the most elegant and um, artistically designed, even to the plain and the commonplace, because God used the prophets as the declarers of the coming of the one for whom all angelic beings bow in worship and adoration. So lighting the candle for the prophets, the prophet's candle, is a simple and yet profound act. It's a testimony to the power of light over darkness. Even the light of one candle can reveal our faces as we stand near the candle. As I light the candle, I invite each of you to respond to the gift of eternal word. The light that opens our eyes to the Messiah and his kingdom. Jesus is the light of the world. And today's prophecy candle symbolizes the centuries of preparation by Almighty God for the birth of his only begotten son in Bethlehem. Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, about the role of the prophets as God's gift wrap. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In light of what the prophets were called to do, we can voice and respond with the word of Isaiah 2.5, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Would you say that aloud with me today? Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord God, eternal creator, you sent prophets to warn the world of the perils of sin and the evil that captures the hearts of human beings. Long before our Savior Jesus' birth, candles of hope flashed through centuries of struggle. Prepare our hearts today, O Lord, to reflect on the wondrous way our Savior and Lord has fulfilled the prophet's yearning. May our yearnings light the candle of learning that leads us into the scriptures with joy. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for the living word. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, Explorers and Pathfinders can be taken on down for their time together and how grateful we are that they carry a candle of learning in their hearts. Amen? Amen. Would you open your Bible today to 2 Peter chapter 1 in looking together today at the way that we as receivers of God's grace might interface with the voice of the prophets. <laughs> I think it's timely. In fact, um, often think that the Sunday following Thanksgiving is like an ideal time to step back a little bit and reflect in a different way about this amazing life-transforming gift. Thank you so much. Kind of thank you. Are you sure? <laughs> thank you. So the life-transforming gift of Jesus in all of our lives, introduced by a God-designed and God-ordained chorus of prophetic voices, and yet in the wise planning and sovereignty of God, just as we heard in Hebrews 1, that he sent his preparation for the coming gift through prophets across the centuries, so that in this, in this era, the last era is referred to there, not so much a brief period of time, but an era. So this, this period of time that we walk in, that we see around us and we experience, is the era of the sun, S-O-N. This is our time. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is born. Christ, the Savior, is born. Come, let us adore him. And yet, as I ask you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, it, it, it's great, it's refreshing, it is vital, it is encouraging, it is life-giving to see exactly here what Peter tells us about the role of the prophets. Now, one of the things that stands out very distinctly 
in this passage, 2 Peter chapter 1. I hope you'll find it in your own Bible, your own copy of God's Word, because it, it is vital to see that the, the, the singular theme that Peter is emphasizing, beginning at verse 13 of this chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, is that the unique and distinctive way that God would prepare the world for the birth of his only begotten son obviously would have to be remarkable and phenomenal, no matter how we might imagine, imagine it. And yet, often as, as contemporary Christians, we miss the significance of why we need to know about these people called the prophets. So I think of today as a kind of a, an invitation to you to join me in, in something I've never done quite this way before. So I want to call it a primer on the prophetic hope. The primer on, like a brief crash course, you might say, on why did we need the prophets? Now, now the very word hope itself is a clue because here again, we tend to think in very weak, watered-down vocabulary words, and we need, to, we need to have a dive into the pages of Scripture to help refresh and uh, revitalize our mind about these words. But let me just start with that very basic word, hope, that so often in our contemporary usage of the language, the word hope gets diminished and watered down to something sort of equivalent, roughly equivalent, with another four-letter word, W-I-S-H. We just think of a hope as a sort of a wish, or maybe a whim, maybe a yearning, maybe a dream even. And yet, when the Bible uses this simple English word hope, the Greek version of it is a, it's more like one of those giant anchors that you'd see in, 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 a, in, in sailing vessels in eras past when, when the, the sheer weight of the magnitude of that anchor is just amazing to behold. It is a giant, powerful source of security. And when the Bible refers to the hope we have in Christ, the emphasis is, is precisely what Peter starts to tell us here in verse 12 and 13 of 2 Peter 1, that if we miss this, it's kind of like buttoning a shirt the wrong way. If you start buttoning a shirt, but you put the wrong button on the top hole or the second hole and the first button in the second hole, you're going to mess up your buttoning, aren't you? From the, so if you get the first button wrong, you're all unbuttoned. You're all out of sorts. And oftentimes we don't get the first button correct in our thinking about the prophets. And what I mean by that is that God designed this plan. Now we may wonder why in some, on the edges of our imagination, legitimately, we all wonder, why would it have to be that way? And, and Peter, we may not be able to answer all those questions. Some of it is simply part of that realm where the Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children. That's Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's a great thing to remember sometimes when you're a little puzzled or perplexed about something. But let's dive into what Peter said because Peter does. Peter does this profound insight into the role of the prophets at the exact thing we need in our generation more than anything else 
and that is clarity about who we believe, what we believe about him, and why we believe it. That anchors you for the storms, the controversies, the perplexities, the disappointments, the struggles, and even your own internal disappointments in life to know the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that it's anchored in his person. Now, 2 Peter 1.12 gives it to us like this. Now, I'm reading, by the way, today the New American Standard, kind of like my favorite study translation, but there's several translations, I'm sure, in the sanctuary today, probably NIV, ESV, maybe New King James. So just read with me in your translation, and I trust you can track with me. 2 Peter 1.12, therefore, Peter says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Now, Peter's doing exactly what this pastor is doing on the first Sunday of Advent. I, I, I'm sure today that this primer is I'm, I'm reminding you of things you already know. It's not probably nothing you've never heard before. And yet the very mention of that in Peter's epistle tells us something that we miss again today, and that is that we're so inclined to think, oh, I've already heard that, so we tune it out. And yet the Bible brings to us this layer upon layer upon God's invitations to each of us to hear again something you may think you've already heard, but in the hearing again is almost like that great uh, illustration a Greek writer used many years ago that no man walks into the same river twice. No man steps into the same river twice because the river's moving. The current is moving, and, and we're growing, and we're changing. And the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it invites us and draws us to encounter him in a way that we may not have been prepared for three years ago. Our hearts might have not have been ready 13 years ago. My mind and soul may have been in a different place 23 years ago. There's a, there's a wondrous wisdom in the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives that sometimes you can hear what you thought you knew, but the Holy Spirit plants a seed that suddenly blossoms in a way that you never expected. So Peter's doing exactly that. Back to the middle of 12, the second Peter 1. Even though you already know them, Peter says, and you've been established in the truth which is present with you. Verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. You might say that Peter, aware of his own mortality here, one of the, one of the key apostles chosen by the Lord Jesus to equip the church in the first century, that he's aware of his own mortality, as we all should be, and is realizing that the deposit of truth he's about to impart is vital for the security and the spiritual growth of the people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, Peter says, I'll be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. Now, Peter here in verse 17 takes us up to a memory of the Mount called the Mount Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 9 that you can read about where, where the Lord Jesus, in for one brief period of time in that entire three and a half years of his earthly ministry with those apostles, for that one brief period of time, they, it's like the, the, the heavenly veil was pulled back and his, and his glory, the splendor and magnitude of the God-man suddenly burst into sight. Peter's talking about that very unique experience here in verse 17. Pick it up at that 17th verse. But when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Here's where Peter records literally hearing the audible voice of God. What did he say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So as Peter describes this, he's talking about this mountaintop experience in a way that would be surprising to many of us. Here we find the very reason we need a primer on the prophetic hope. Because Peter is having an experience that most of us would just feel was an awesome, incomparable, priceless opportunity. Who would not, who among us would not have just given anything to literally see his glory in the unveiled way that Peter and James and John did in that Mount of Transfiguration? So he says it like this. Let's pick it up from the screen. He says, we were with Jesus on the holy mountain. Would you say that aloud with me? We were with Jesus on the holy mountain. Now, here we are, the, an experience, one of many of the encounters with the living Christ in those days of his Galilean ministry that, that we would just think are just so incomparable and unforgettable. And would you not, like Peter, be absolutely certain about what you saw? And would you not, like Peter, be wanting to tell others what you saw and what it meant and certainly what the voice of the Father said about his only Son? So he says it. We were with Jesus on the holy mountain. We would have liked to have been there. Now Peter makes an astonishing statement. And let's see it here from this translation. So we have now the prophetic word made more certain, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So the first thing we might say today about the prophetic voice is the prophetics, the prophets of the old covenant era leading up to the last of those prophets, who was John the Baptist, though he appears in the New Testament le of record. His, he's actually the old last of that line of the forerunner prophets. And in that sense, Jesus said, in one sense, he's the greatest of them all. And, and, and yet his privilege, Jesus said, is, is less than the least of the redeemed children of God who've experienced the new birth. So the prophetic, we might say the prophetic chain of events that leads to Advent is something that was designed by God and has present tense value for us. And here's another mistake that 
contemporary Christians often make. Because it's, quote, Old Testament, because it's something in that era, and we're not under law, we're under grace, we think these things in a very casual way. We think it's no longer of much significance. But no, the contrary, on the contrary, read what Peter said in verse 19. We have the prophetic word made more certain to which you do well, he said, to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. So there is a sense in which we'll dip back today into a section of this prophetic hope. And we'll, and we'll be looking toward the glory of the coming one. But in the manner in which God chose to make it known so that the very pattern of God's plan would be outlined in a way, phenomenally, that no human brain, not the most advanced intelligence among humanity, could ever have figured out the way God was going to send his only begotten son into the world. As common and familiar as John 3.16 is to us, we can also stand back with awe to realize that when God so loved the gave begotten son, not a one of us could have ever guessed or dreamed how he would do it. And this is where the word of the prophets, like a light shining in a dark place, points us back to the ultimate intention of Almighty God. And, and what is their role? Now, continue in your text, if you would, there in 2 Peter 1, and notice that Peter is aiming at something here, and he's aiming at something that, that we can also relate to both first advent and his return as a part of the total picture of how God anchors us in this life to live by faith. <laughs> that is, that this prophetic word was to shine until the day dawns, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Do you see that in the text there in verse 19 that the, there are two images of this bursting forth of the daylight. The day will dawn and the morning star, Peter is pointing out to, is the ultimate fulfillment of the dawning of this day of grace. Now, Peter's purpose, we'll leave his text at this point, but his purpose in the concluding part of the chapter is to show that this is why we need, let me put it in street language for us today, this is why we need the Bible. This is why we need God's word daily in our lives and in its fullness and the comprehensive gift of God's word in our lives Every single phrase, to use the old-fashioned language of Matthew 5, every jot and tittle, every tiny apostrophe and comma, every, every punctuation mark of God's word, that God has sends his life and his light to us through the word of God. And even when we look at the fulfillment of the birth of Jesus, of the prophetic plan, still... God uses his eternal word to bring us life. We see that in the book of Hebrews as we heard in Acts. Uh, we see it through the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. 
We see it even in the words of the Lord Jesus himself when he talked to the disciples in John chapter 12 about a passage we're going to now look at in a moment. Jesus said, these things Isaiah said because he saw the glory of Messiah and he spoke of him. That is, these prophets are like signposts to us. But I think it's notable here that what Peter's really aiming at is so present tense contemporary for us. It is that to meet the Messiah, to meet the Lord, is to know and love the living word of God because he is the living Logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. All things were made with him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made and has its existence. So this living word, the Lord Jesus, eternally God, becomes man at a precise point in time. Somebody said that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the only person who has ever lived who existed before he was conceived in the womb. He's the only person who ever lived who existed before his mother was carrying him as a baby in the womb. This is the remarkable and astonishing fact of the God-man. And so when Peter uses this phrase, the morning star here, notice that just before we leave Peter, the morning star rises in your heart. He, he seems to be hinting here at something that intrigued the, the, the minds of the ancients. In fact, the oldest chronologically the oldest book of the bible is the book of job it's the first in in chronological time in terms of it actually being penned and in in that in that wonderful ancient record of uh, the things the flashes of of understanding that god gave to job even in even in his very uh, very uh, in indescribably difficult life god was still giving prophetic flashes of insight of the future and uh, Job puts it this way in the 38th chapter of his book, and outshining, he speaks of the morning stars singing together, the morning star rising and singing together, and he seems to use that phrase as an outshining of the long recognized as a hint of God's splendor shining into the earth. And what I noticed as I, as I looked at his use of morning star is that Peter draws from this pattern of Job who speaks of the morning stars singing together and of the book of Proverbs chapter 8 where the, the voice of God refers to eternal wisdom, the logos, the, the, the existence of God's mind embedded in Christ before, even before Bethlehem. And what we see is that Christ's birth for us is the dawning of this day in which we are given the good news of God's love and the morning star rising is a, reminding, a reminder to us that the bright hope of every prophetic gift of God is for us to anticipate his coming. Anticipate the coming of Christ. And so in one sense, we might say that Advent, it has a dual, a dual focus in our lives, and that is back to reflect and remember and rejoice in the advent of the dawning of the day of God's gift of grace. And even in that day in which we live, we anticipate 
the morning star, the bright shining, the bright outshining of the splendor of God that tells us God is not finished with his plan for planet Earth. And the Redeemer reigns now until he's put all of his enemies at his feet. So I believe that Peter identifies this hint, this hint of the morning star. <laughs> the pagans thought of the morning star as, the, as Venus shining in that uh, dark sky. But the Hebrews tended to see that Pleiades and Orion. And their view was that Pleiades and Orion not being the not being of, of an astronomer, of, of an astrological sign, but being the recognition that God who planted the stars into the stellar heavens is the one who directs his entire plan for his people. And Job's words linked with Peter helped us see that even Peter recognized that imagery, that illustration, that, the, that what we look forward to is the morning star arriving in our hearts. What I'd like to ask you to do with me is open your Bible back to Isaiah chapter 2. Here that we want to look at something in the 7th and ninth chapters of Isaiah that's a good example. It's quoted in Matthew, so I've placed that on the screen here, but we're going to go directly back to Isaiah. Because I'd like for you to notice here that this day dawning, the dawning of the day, is God's visual reminder to us that if you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God placed you on a new horizon in your life. The horizon of hope is God's gift to you today. If you're a child of God, and the wonderful news I can share with you is that if you're not yet a child of God, if you're hearing this message, wherever you may be, and you're not absolutely sure that you've given your heart to the Lord Jesus, that you have asked him to reign personally, to receive what God has made available to all who will hear this good news, you can have that assurance this very day. And, and through a, through a, a gentle and, and gracious gift of God in bringing one of us alongside you in a confidential way to pray with you and to be with you, God can make that assurance so real in your heart. So when you see the day dawning, we realize the significance of, of a region of the Galilee in Isaiah 9 that the prophet speaks of. Here's one example of why a primer on the prophetic hope is so valuable, because here we have in Isaiah chapter 9, God's word showing us that his plan to send his son to redeem us had a specific focus not only the purpose of sending, God even chose the exact places where Jesus would teach and preach. And, and in Isaiah 9, he refers to a contrast between the darkness of oppression that was happening in their nation because of the invasion of an Assyrian army and of the destruction of the spiritual vitality of the people of that day, that darkness is now overcome by the in-sweeping of the light of the coming Messiah. Think of it like this, that God is telling us about Galilee in Isaiah 9, that this region where the Lord Jesus walked so many miles 
with those sandals of first century travel, that he spent so much time ministering the power of the gospel, that very area around the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth, and Bethsaida, and Capernaum, and up into the mountains toward Lebanon, was chosen by God to be a vivid illustration of what God will do on the landscape of your life. We might put it this way. God gave Galilee of the Gentiles a new horizon when the day dawned, when Messiah came, and God does the same for you. How dark is your Galilee? How dark are your surroundings? God's grace in Christ spreads the light of the dawning of the day. Let's read the words in Isaiah 9. Again, I'm reading the New American Standard translation. But there will be no more gloom for who, her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. We won't take the time to read it, but just as I note here, for you, you might want to just put a, a placeholder in Matthew 4. And just note, just very quickly too, that Matthew 4 gives us the fulfillment of this literally. And what is remarkable here, again, another aspect of this primer on the prophets, is that Isaiah is prophesying in chapter 9, 735 years before the birth of Jesus. And his prophetic message is literally fulfilled as recorded in Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. And there in Matthew 4, 16, he quotes these words, we're reading, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Now, our theme in this year of Advent for Liberty Church is his light on your horizon. And Galilee of the Gentiles pictures exactly that. And it tells us something about each individual that we can draw from for our lives in verse 16 of Matthew 4 as the same as in verse 2 of Isaiah 9. That those who live in a dark land, prophet Isaiah said, those who are sitting in darkness, those who find themselves sitting in a place that feels dark and surrounded by perplexity, disappointment, the light will shine on them. Now, in your Bible back in Isaiah, page back, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 7. Now, you see, to do this right, we would, one of the things we'd like to do is just to very quickly to summarize why these words strike us in Isaiah 9 as the light dawning, the light dawning here across the horizon of Galilee. God is giving the Galileans a brand new horizon of hope. God is giving you a horizon of hope. And just as he did for the people of that region, Isaiah chapter 7, in order to do justice to us, I want to give you a quick summary. Three things that are a part of the, what led up to that ninth chapter. One, and all of these, amazingly, are, are anchored in real history. These are real historical events in which the prophetic voice, the prophetic word, like Peter said, like a light shining in a dark place, just like the light you might see through a keyhole, you can't see everything, but the light radiantly shines through. 
So it is with the prophets. And one of the things that we find in Scripture about these prophets is that there was a clear, bright, blue line delineating between true prophet and false prophet. Now that's aside from the theme we can cover today, but it's vital to know there were tests to these prophets, and among them were the historical accuracy, but also the astounding way God brought together prophetic word that would almost sound like it was talking about two different subjects, but in the trajectory of the Messiah's birth, those vectors come together in the bright dawning of the birth of Jesus, and we see that the same God who said, for example, he'll be born in Bethlehem, is also the same God who gives the prophet the voice, I will call my son out of Egypt. And it is God who joins those historical accuracy so that, again, something no human brain could ever have conceived becomes the story of the manger, the story of the nativity, the reality of Christmas. Well, in Isaiah 7, there were three things to remember. One is there was a shaky alliance of kings, and the shaky alliance of these, I, I call it this way, and we'll toggle back to that, but I call it a shaky alliance of Three scheming kings. <laughs> now, quickly, there were there are different ways we, we might look at this, but the first way we need to see it is that these kings, king of Assyria, the king of Syria, Assyria and Syria, two different, two different entities, and then the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, were seeking to conspire with Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom. Now, we'll illustrate that in a moment, but just bear this in mind. The only thing that we need to take away from this is that these individuals thought of themselves as the power brokers. And we have an issue in our time that is so relevant. So many in positions of political power or corporate power or ecclesiastical power or some other realm of society perceive of themselves as the key actors on the stage of their life. And yet, God, though he gives everyone plenty of room of freedom of will, God can overrule any ruler, no matter how far, and bring about, even through their wrongs, God can bring about a purpose that serves his ultimate goal. And it is for this reason that one of the verses that I think we should take from this uh, uh, this sort of this primer of the prophets is a psalm that I hope you'll go home with today very quickly. Psalm 3310, two parts of it, and read it aloud with me. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Now think about this. God can take the most arrogant of rulers and he can totally overrule them even while letting them still think that they have carte blanche. Read the rest of that psalm. Read this with me. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So the shaky alliance of kings, the first thing, second thing to take home from Isaiah 7 is that there's a series of signs from God that are given in the names of children. 
And then thirdly, these precise prophecies elevate Scripture to the present tense grace that you and I need as well as preparing us for the future, just like Peter said, just like 2 Peter 1.17, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. This is both first advent and the ultimate conquest of his return. So when we think of it this way, it's kind of interesting to think of how, how often um, rulers and people of power envision their power in a way that is decisive and consequential, and yet God steps in and he orders things here for the purpose of the sending of his son almost eight centuries later. Um, this is why I believe it's so important to, to grasp that psalm I gave you. That psalm I gave you, Psalm 3310, uh, concludes with this statement, let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. <laughs> now, the Syrian ruler tried to align with Israel, the northern kingdom of the divided kingdom of Israel, in order to entice Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom called Judah, so that they could hopefully ward off the invasion of a monster kingdom, Assyria. <laughs> we might think of it like this. Assyria is the 800-pound gorilla here, Assyria. And Syria, Israel, and Judah are like the three small players. And the story of Isaiah 7 gives us in the prophetic names of three children, a reminder that God was, even in their time of darkness, God was sending them signs that his plan was to bring the Messiah, their deliverer. And the signs were given these names in a very odd way. The first and third names were very puzzling to us. Sheer Jashub is the first name that comes in that seventh chapter of Isaiah. And Sheer Jashub literally means um, that uh, a remnant will return. So it's a part, it's, it's, it's a reminder God gave to the king of at that time named Ahaz. He gave this guy who had a mixed record in the Bible. Second Chronicles 16 tells us that he, he was a he had done many things that were right in the sight of the Lord, but then it goes on to record his straying from trust in the God of the, the, the God of creation to begin to gravitate toward pagan gods. And he did it hoping to save his skin. This is not political people trying to use religion in order to further their power is not unique to the 21st century. He was trying to manipulate the religious culture in order to retain his power and advance his goal. And God had said, Ahaz, God dips into his life in Isaiah 7 and gives him a chance to believe the word of God. Isn't that amazing? Do you know something? There is no single person you can think of today, I don't care how entangled they are in sin, that God's word will not come to them like it did to Ahaz and say, you can still believe God. Sheer Jashub, the first child, was designed to show that. The second child prophesied is, of course, the wonderful gift of Emmanuel, and we'll come back to that later in Advent. And then the third one was an even weirder name, an even weirder name, probably the most weird name in Scripture, 
when our when our sons were young, we used to joke about this name sometimes, saying just teasingly, we thought about naming you this, you know, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. How would you like to? How would you like it, your kid to be named Meher Shalal Hashbaz? But God had chosen in chapter eight to give that name to Isaiah to war, to use the son as a sign. That word Meher Shalal Hashbaz literally meant haste to the spoil and hurry to the prey. <laughs> what a strange name! How would you like in first grade to say my name is haste to the spoil and hurry to the prey? But uh, the goal of that sign was that God used Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 8.18. It's a great insight into what was happening here. That he says, I and the children God has given me are signs. Do you see that in your Bible? In Isaiah 8.18, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And the whole reason was, and what I've tried to illustrate in this, I tried to do it this way to accent, that the entire plan was that in real history, God had a fulfillment for all three of those signs. But the heart of the message, something no, no scholar, no philosopher, no prognosticator, no speculator could have ever dreamed, was that that second of the three children was going to be a son born of a literal virgin 740 years later, and his name would be called Emmanuel. And so like Peter says, in the prophetic word, even in the dark landscape of night, the day was dawning and the morning star far across the horizon was going to be none other than the person of Jesus. Now, as we pray today, I'm going to ask you to think about, for a moment, with our eyes closed, the fact that the God who so designed all this, the God who could overrule this scheming coalition of kings, the God who could tell a prophet to name a son, to give hope to a straying king, and then name a third son to let them know, time's up, time's up, judgment's coming. And yet, in the very middle of those three, to have a son who is also a sign, but is really just a foreshadowing of the ultimate sign of the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. How good is God? Now think of it, with your eyes closed for a moment, if God would do that, so strategically plotting out the prophet's voice for eight centuries, how much more can you trust him today to give to him, to give to your heavenly father the most anxious care you might have brought into this sanctuary today, to bring to your heavenly father in prayer the most, the most complex issue you might be facing. Would you bring that? Would you? With our eyes closed, could you lift a hand if you said, I'm going to bring to God right now, I'm going to bring to God something that I, it was hard for me to trust him for. Would you lift your hand? I'm going to bring it to him. Lift your hand. Hold it up real high. Hold it up real high. I want to pray for you. Lord God, today as we lift hands in this place, we recognize that your sovereign and strategic planning and purpose overrules our feeble and fallible and flailing attempts to try to create our own happiness. Lord, we know there are things 
just as Scripture shows us, that are beyond the realm of our grasp. So we do what you offered Ahaz to do, an opportunity to believe, an opportunity to trust, an opportunity to cast our cares upon God. Lord, we receive it. And, and for each hand lifted today, I pray for a grace, a grace from God to begin to step back and, and even in those quiet times of just opening the Bible and reflecting on this promise of Psalm 33, that though you frustrate the counsel of nations, we can all stand in awe of you because your purpose prevails. Once again, with your hand lifted up, just one more time, would you just kind of like wave a hand saying to the Lord like a sign, I'm trusting you, Father. I'm going to trust you with this. Friends, every time we close a service here at Liberty, we want it to be known. We may not say it every week, but you are so welcome to come meet here at the front for a brief time of prayer for anyone or to, or to say, I need to talk to you private. I want some time to pray through a, a problem confidentially. We love to do that because above all, just as Jesus said to the disciples, that if, you're, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will. And your father will be pleased that you came and you brought it. He loves to have his kids come running to daddy. Thank you, Lord, for your prophetic plan. Amen.